Father, we thank you so much because you truly are worthy of all the worship we can offer you. Not just when we feel like it, not just when it's fun, but because, God, of who you are and all that you've done for us. I pray, Father, as we seek you in your word tonight, that our attitude of worship would continue. I pray that you would guide us through your word, that you would teach us your truth, and then by that truth, that you would sanctify us, as Jesus prayed we would be. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David became king over all of Israel. And God granted David victory over the Philistines and then gave David victory over the Jebusites and the conquest of Jerusalem, which was also called Zion or the city of David, the new capital of Israel. Uh, It was Hebron under David. Um, It was, I'm looking at all of you. Where did Saul rule from? Anybody remember it was in Benjamin, but I can't remember the name of the city now. Oh, well, go back and read 1 Samuel. You'll find it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. No, no, I can't think of what it was. Anyways, we studied it when we were back there. I just don't remember. So, He gained a bunch more wives, got himself some concubines, had a bunch of kids. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, built David a house in Jerusalem. But now it's time for the ark of the Lord to come back. If you remember way back when, 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines captured the ark when the Israelites foolishly took it out to battle. It was the same day Eli and both of his sons died. Um, And they captured the ark and they took it home and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon, who was kind of a fish-headed god. And they get up the next morning and Dagon's on his face in front of the ark. And they're like, oh, a stiff breeze or something, you know, so they set him back up. (laughs) The next morning, Dagon's on his face in front of the ark, but his head and hands have been broken off. Okay, probably not a stiff breeze. So they move the ark to another city. Well, then that city gets plagued with boils and tumors so they move the ark to another city and that plague get, that city gets overrun by rats that's eating all their food supplies and they go we we probably shouldn't keep this thing so they send it back to israel they put it on a new cart with two cows uh that were um i think they were so so everybody knows this but me the difference between a cow that's had a baby and hasn't they have Is that what happened? That was a sure sign from God. That's right. You're very right. Wow, you're very right. Yes. So they had had calves. So they were cows, not heifers. Um, And so, but they said, so if it goes home, then it's there. So it goes home and it stops in um, Kirjith Jerem, which it stayed at until 2 Samuel chapter 6. This was a period of about 70 years. It's a long time that it was in Kirjith Jerem. So, chapter 6, again David gathered, gathered, gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went, all, went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah 
to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzzah and Ohio, not Ohio, Ahio, the sons of Abinadab drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. We really need a sistrum player here at New Song. So if anybody wants to pick that up, first you'd have to figure out what it was. And then you could learn how to play it. Uh, when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. No good, Uzzah. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day, which literally means outburst against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David decides to bring the Ark of God into their new capital, into Jerusalem. I do love that they want to bring um, the Ark of God by whose name is called by the name. Because remember, the Jewish people at one point in time knew how to pronounce the name of God. Um, Our two versions of it, we, we have no idea if they're correct. They thought that human beings should not be allowed to pronounce the name of God. So they took out the vowels, leaving us with uh, what what equates to in English a Y-H and then a V-H. It's lovingly referred to as the tetragrammatron, not a transformer. (laughs) My daughter just kind of rolled her eyes at me. That was worth it. So worth it. Um, so what we have done is we have tried to figure out how to pronounce it by adding the vowels from either Elohim or Adonai. Elohim is the word is one of the words for God in Hebrew. Adonai is the word for Lord. One way we get Yahweh, if you take the vowels out of Elohim and put it in YHVH, you get Yahweh. If you take the vowels out of Adonai and put it in there, you get Jehovah or Yehovah. Both of those could completely be wrong. We have no idea. <laughs> but that's what it means when it says the name. Also, every time uh, most Bibles, if the word Lord, L-O-R-D, is in all capital letters, it's because it's those four letters in Hebrew. And instead of writing the name every time in the English translation, which is actually what they say in Hebrew, if they're reading the Hebrew scriptures and they get to that, those four letters, they simply say the name. Um, 
and so it does come out here in English. But typically, uh, we translated or English translators put it capital L-O-R-D. So he wants to make Jerusalem, which has already become the political capital of Israel, the spiritual capital of Israel. He takes 30,000 men with him to do this. But all Judah, which is the town named, is just another name for Kirjith Jerim. That comes from Joshua 15, verse 9. And so what does David do? Well, the last time the ark was moved by the Philistines, they put it on a new cart. So David said, well, let's put it on a new cart. And the people are worshiping until the ark or the oxen stumble and the ark starts to slip off the cart. And Uzzah, right? I can't help but think Uzzah had good intention. Didn't want the ark of God to land on the ground. So he puts his hand out to steady it, and God's like, nope. And he kills him on the spot. David gets angry, right? Because he's like, well, that's not fair. There's a lot of people who say that. I'm not going to question the fairness of God. God did what he did, and they, should, they were warned. We're going to get into that in a minute. But he also becomes very afraid, which, you know, if I was in church and somebody did something wrong, and God killed them on the spot for it, I'm thinking I'd freak out a little bit too. It'd be really hard to explain to the police. What happened to that person? Lightning? Inside? Yep. (laughs) I mean, how do you... (laughs) Aurora Borealis. (laughs) You know? But I understand this mixed emotion from David. That on one hand, he's angry, and on one hand, he's scared. So, obviously, that leads to develop, David developing a greater fear and reverence for God. So, they leave the ark in the home of Obed-Edom for three months, who is then blessed for keeping the ark. Now, and we're not going to go back there and read it all, but if you were, uh, and you can do this for homework if you want, go to Numbers chapter 4. And read the first 20 verses. God gives very specific instructions for moving the ark and the other items in the tabernacle. Things like the altar, the table of showbread, the lampstand, right? All of that was inside the holy place, the ark being in the holiest of all. In those instructions, the high priest's family, specifically the direct descendants of Aaron, so his sons and and then downward, they would go in and cover everything so that nobody could see it. Then, the sons of Kohath, who were tasked with this, would come in and put poles through the loops that were built into these items, and they would lift it by the poles. It was covered so they couldn't look at it. They would lift it by the poles so they wouldn't touch it. What was the penalty for touching any of the holy items? In Numbers chapter 4, Verse 15, it says, But they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. Now, I probably didn't have to read it that truncated, but I did. They knew. This is why I'm not, God is certainly not unfair. He said, don't touch that, or I'm going to kill you. And they went, really? (laughs) You know? Not a good idea. I've, all told you, I've told you all the story, but it's so appropriate. Uh, the, the stove story. I've told you the story about the stove when I was a kid. 
There's a couple of people here who I know haven't heard it. So uh, we had one of those electric stovetops that had the spiral elements on top. And my mom had taken a, a pot off of it. I don't remember what was in the pot. And she, uh, she looked at me. I was standing in the kitchen. She said, don't touch it. I just reached up, set my hand directly on it. And then I screamed and cried for about an hour because I had circular burns, right? The flesh, there was flesh on the element. It was awesome. And I sat there on ice with tears. And my mom, rightfully so, looked at me and said, well, I told you not to touch it. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really feel bad for you. Right, it's good parenting. Parenting 101. I tell you not to do it. You do it anyway. You suffer. Um, the problem here is not David's heart. David's heart to bring the ark back to where it belonged, it was okay. It was the way that David decided he would do it. Right? It was a way that seemed good to him. There was a new cart. There was worship. 30,000 people accompanying it back to Jerusalem. But he didn't do it God's way. And that's even worse because God's way was so clearly outlined in God's word. Instead, he borrowed the methods of the Philistines to do the work of God in transporting the ark. And you know what? We just need to do things God's way. Now, sometimes we don't understand that. So there's a couple of verses, I think, that speak to that. Romans eleven thirty three through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who is first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Then we have Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So you see, we have a similar choice as Christians, as followers of Christ. We can attempt to A, get our will done. Probably not going to go well. Then we, we may say, well, I know this is God's will, but then we try to do it our own way. Again, probably not going to work out. What we need to do is to seek to follow God's will and to follow his way. When we do that, he will be with us. He will make our efforts fruitful. And this is all the more important for how the church should operate and grow. Now, I'm going to talk about this again on Sunday. It's really fresh in my mind because I was working on my sermon. But in Acts 2, 42 through 47, among other places, we're told God's way for the church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Do you see that progression? What are we supposed to do? 
We're supposed to stick to the clear teaching of God's word. We're supposed to have fellowship, which means basically that we love and care for one another and keep each other accountable. We're supposed to eat. It's right there in Scripture. Now, I know that's typically referring to the Lord's Supper, but they, all, they usually had a feast around the Lord's Supper, right? And what, then pray. If we do that, then what God did for them, he'll do for us. The Lord will be the one who adds to the church. And one of the saddest things that I see happening in the church world today, and it's, it's not even today, it's been happening for a long time, um, is the world trying to look like the, sorry, the church trying to look like the world in order to get people to come inside. You know, uh, you guys, uh, a lot of you, I've, I've mentioned it before, the seeker-sensitive movement. It became real popular in the late 90s, early 2000s. It's, it's hanging on today. Well, you know what? We're not going to talk about Jesus in our sermons. What? We're, we're not going to get into the Word. We're not going to talk about sin. What we really want, we want people to come in. We want them to feel comfortable. We want them to feel good about themselves so they come back. And then when they come back, you know, after a while, maybe then we share the gospel with them. Uh-uh. That's a bad idea. There's churches that still follow that model today. And I'll tell you what, they get big. You want to know why they get big? Because it's fluff. It's, what's the phrase? All hat and no cattle. I think your dad taught me that phrase, Kelly. He's just <laughs> laughing back there. Pretty sure, pretty sure it was Pat who taught, or, or Roy. It was one of y'all. All hat, no cattle, right? It's all flash and no substance. You know, I, I make fun of, and I do it a lot. I think we're going to get, I think it's in my notes later, so I'll probably make fun of it twice tonight. But, you know, we, we're not going to have light shows, and we're not going to have fog machines, and, uh, and you're not going to ever see me... Um, water down the word of God to try to make people happy or feel more comfortable. You know, I want people to come and I want them to hear the truth. That's what I want because that's what God wants. And he tells us how he wants us to do it. So why would we do it any other way? It doesn't make sense to me. Verse 12. Now it was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that they, he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So here we see David doing it God's way and taking no chances. Now, how do we know he's doing it God's way? Well, your other homework assignment can be to go read 1 Chronicles chapter 15. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, David calls the priests and he said, all right, we tried to move the ark. It didn't work. Uzzah is dead. But we need to get the ark up here what do we do? And the priest said, okay, well, this is how it goes. You got to get some sons of Kohath. So they found some descendants of Kohath and you got to get some sons of Aaron to cover the thing up. So they got some sons of Aaron and then they went down and covered it up and put the poles in and the sons of Kohath were carrying it. 
And David, just to be safe, decided we're going to make a sacrifice every six steps. Now, there was a a Christian record company back in the late 90s called Six Steps Records. Uh, Matt Redman, Chris Tomlin, a bunch of folks were part of it. But that's another story. So I did a little math. And you know how much I don't like math. But this, I had to figure this out. Kirjath-Jerim to Jerusalem is 12.5 miles. Obed-Edom's house was somewhere between Kirjath-Jerim and Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly where it was at. So I put in a guess. Let's assume it was roughly halfway, right? They picked it up at Kirjith-Jerim. They get about halfway. Uzzah reaches out, touches the ark, dies. They drop the ark off at Obed-Edom's house, and they go, well, we're leaving. Now, a mile, as you know, is 5,280 feet. And let's say the men carrying the ark had a stride length of about three feet. I use that stride length because that's how long my stride length is, is give or take 34, 36 inches. Now, maybe they were really short and their stride length was shorter, which would make this all the worse. Six steps would then have been roughly 18 feet, which means they stopped to sacrifice, give or take, 293 times per mile. Now, if our assumption of roughly halfway is correct, it means they stopped and sacrificed somewhere between 17 and 1,800 times. Now, Obed-Edom's house could have been a mile away from Kirjith-Jerim. So they did this for 11 and a half miles, not six. And Obed-Edom's house could have been a mile away from Jerusalem. So they only did it 293 times. But whatever the case, that's a lot. This was, okay, we got six miles to walk, let's just go. No, this would have taken a very long time. This is an estimate. I could be way off, who knows? But I would, this is what happens, right? I'm sitting in my office, I'm studying this, and I'm going, every six decks, how many times did they stop? And because I thought about it, you have to listen to it. That's just the way it goes. Um, But following this method, They bring the ark into Jerusalem. And it says, David danced with all his might before the Lord and did so in that day's equivalent of underwear. He had taken off his royal robes and he was essentially dressed like a slave. He may be a king before men, but before God, we are all the same. Psalm 149, verses 3 and 4 says, Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people, and he adorns the humble with salvation. So now you'll meet people that say, well, it's a sin to worship God using music. I don't see how you come to that conclusion reading the Bible. Well, there are some that say you can use music, but you can't use musical instruments. Last I checked, a tambourine was a musical instrument, an annoying one, but a musical instrument nonetheless. And look at the other things they talked about. Instruments of fir wood, right? That would probably be something akin to a flute. Uh, Harps, 
probably something like a harp. Um, stringed instruments, right? They had multiple variations of stringed instruments. Tambourines, I still have no idea what a sistrum was. And then cymbals, right? So they had some sort of percussion going on. They had a whole band, right? Psalm says, worship him with dancing. The poor folks in the town where the movie Footloose takes place would have benefited greatly from reading Psalm 149 and 2 Samuel chapter 6. It is not a sin to dance. It is not a sin to worship God using music and musical instruments. It's not. We're in 2 Samuel. Yep, 2 Samuel. Uh, and then Psalm 149 is what I just talked about. For those listening to the recording, there was a question asked about where we were. Um, but yeah, Psalm 149, 3 and 4, and we're in 2 Samuel. Um, there's nothing wrong with being expressive in worship. I think the issue that we see today too often is people being expressive to draw attention to themselves, which then takes the focus off of God. Now, I would prefer that no one comes to worship here in nothing but their underwear. Please don't. It's cold outside. However, when our focus is on God and our expressiveness is to genuinely worship him, it is a beautiful thing. I remember, and you all know, I love Pastor Chuck and I love Calvary Chapel and the history of Calvary Chapel. It's awesome. Go see the movie, Jesus Revolution. I can't wait till it comes either here or out on Blu-ray so I can watch it um, because Grand Junction is too far to drive. But one of the things that Calvary Chapel did later on, and they didn't do this in the midst of the Jesus Revolution. It came up later. Is they would not let people stand during the musical portion of worship and they wouldn't let people raise their hands and stuff like that. And I'm like, I, I, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I've heard Pastor Chuck teach on worship. I heard him, I actually listened to him teach this, this chapter. And I'm like, why, why did they ever put that rule in place? Now, if you start running up and down the aisle in our little church, waving your own tambourine and screaming at the top of your lungs the lyrics to the worship song, I'm guessing you're not doing that to bring honor to the Lord. But if you raise your hands, if you cry, if you need to get down on your knees, if you need to go to the back so you can sway without running into the person next to you or however it is, awesome. Because the Bible says it's okay. Now, David wrote two psalms for this occasion. Psalm 96 and Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. Uh, this is recorded in 1 Chronicles 16, there's another chapter you can read for homework. I've given you a lot of homework tonight. Psalm 96 and Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. Don't worry about the recording. Just keep asking questions. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16. Now, the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord... And she despised him in her heart. 
So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle and David, that David had erected for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and the men, to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants. I don't know how she became British. As one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, okay, there's a lot of great responses in the Bible. This may be one of my favorite. It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So there's two things that take place here. One, we see Michael being the snare to David that Saul hoped she would be. Uh, Back in 1 Samuel 18, 21, when David asked for Michael's hand in marriage, Saul, right, we have this recorded for us, was like, yeah, that's a great idea. She's going to be a thorn in his side. What a great thought to have about your daughter. Yeah, she's really going to give him a hard time. Yeah, marry Michael. Yeah. Two, we see the ark put in its place with great worship and David giving the people food to take home with him. But we're going to take them out of order. So David apparently had the tabernacle erected in Jerusalem. They offered sacrifices, and David blesses the people and sends them away with a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. Now, I imagine at this point, David was on a spiritual high, right? He'd had this beautiful and worshipful experience with the Lord and with the people, and he went home to bless his family. And I think it is often... When we have these spiritual high points that the enemy tries to bring us down. And this is what we see the enemy doing here, right? Here the enemy looks like Michael. Now you've heard me say on multiple occasions that there's many times that the Holy Spirit looks like my wife. I'm going to leave that there. (laughs) Michael had seen David's behavior and it says she despised him in her heart. I'm going to ask this question and I'm not going to answer it for myself. (laughs) Have you ever looked at somebody in a worship service or talked to somebody who was talking about great experience they had with the Lord, something along those lines, and you're just thinking in the back of your mind, just shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Just, just, Just put your hands down. Just sit down. Just stop singing. Just stop telling me about it. Just shut up. Right? Anybody? Am I the only one? A lot of people here better than me. None of my family raised your hand. You're liars. <laughs> Repent. Right? Well, sometimes we get that attitude, and that was Michael's attitude. She, I, I don't think she was really mad at David. Maybe she was jealous. Maybe, maybe she was looking at it, and she was reminded of the fact that, that David took her away from her husband, that 
Saul, her dad, was dead, and that's why David is now king. I mean, there could have been a ton of reasons, but whatever is, she looked at him with disdain, with hatred. How glorious was the king of Israel today. Now, David's response, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house, right? Not just your father, but your brothers and your nieces and your nephews and your uncles. Okay, not nieces. They couldn't be king. And to appoint me ruler of the people. Was David right? I don't know. I think it was a great comment. Great comeback, right? But I'm, I'm sinful and flawed. <laughs> the reality is, cutting words breed cutting words. Have you ever noticed that? You try to cut somebody down, they usually just try to cut right back. Proverbs 15.1 tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath. That's awesome, right? But a harsh word stirs up anger. Michael's words to David were harsh. David got angry. And he went back at her with it. Then he goes on and he says, but I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this. Anybody remember the Matt Redman song? Right? And I'll become even more undignified than this. They always did that. It was so annoying. Um, but anyways, I love Matt Redman and that's a great song, but they always, they did that with yes, so I could never do it. Um, he goes, I'll be humble in my own sight, but the maidservants, they will honor me. So David tells her, you know what? Yeah, I worship the Lord and I'm going to gladly be despised even more. I'm going to humble myself even more in order to worship my God. And I love that. Don't let anybody look at you and go, man, you, you look stupid when you raise your hands in worship. Okay, I don't care. You know, because I'm not here for your opinion. Michael had no children to the day of her death. Now, there's two possibilities. One, the Lord made her barren. The Bible doesn't say that, but it's a possibility. The other possibility is that David cut her off. And, you know, she slept alone for the rest of her life. I don't know which one it was. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about worship in general. And then we're going to close. One of the Hebrew words for worship is the word, and, and I'm going to butcher it, it's C-H-A-V-A-H. So it's really like Hava, but Hava Nagila, that's actually where that word comes from. Um, and it literally means to live, declare, or show. Now, one of the Greek words that's often used for worship is the word proskuneo. And if you want to know how to spell either one of those, well, I spelled the first one. I'll spell the second one. Uh, P-R-O-S-K-U-N-E-O, proskuneo. And it means to kiss like a dog licking its master's hand. It also means to fawn over, to prostrate oneself in homage, so to bow down, to revere, adore, and worship. When we think about these biblical definitions and we look at the multitude of examples of worship in the Bible, we can come to the conclusion that worship is not simply singing songs. It can be. It can certainly involve singing and music and dancing and so forth. However, what worship really is for us as followers of Christ is to live a life 
of reverent adoration of God. This means that worship is not something we do, but it is a lifestyle that we live. Worship of God is to permeate every aspect of our lives. Yes, we're commanded to come to church, we're commanded to sing songs, and we should. But we can also worship God when we spend time with our families. We can worship God when we go hiking. Now, don't, don't go hiking and say, well, I meet God in the forest, so I'm going to skip church. Grr. We can worship God when we're fishing. We can worship God when we're camping. We can worship God when we play pickleball. Or maybe not, depending on how we're acting that day. I'm looking at John because we've seen each other not behave on the pickleball court. Right? There's, there's so many ways we can worship God. We can worship God when we cook a meal for someone in need, when we pray for a missionary on the other side of the country or on the other side of the world. We can and should worship God in every part of our lives. Worship cannot be reserved for singing songs at church. Consider this verse. Colossians three sixteen and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In these two verses, look at the things that worship is equated to. Right? It's equated to the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. It's equated to teaching. It's then equated with admonishing one another. Do you know when you encourage a brother or sister in Christ? That's an act of worship. Not worshiping them, but worshiping God by your actions. Then, of course, right, we have psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace, so music's involved. And then it ends with whatever you do, in word or deed, right? I don't care what you say or what you do. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that mean? That everything in our lives should be an act of worship. Now, I don't always do that. And I know y'all well enough to know you don't always do that. But it's what we're called to. Our lives are an act of worship. So then I have to ask, what's our motivation? What's our motivation to worship God? Is it when we feel like it? Do we worship God only when we like the song? Do we worship when it serves some purpose for ourselves, like getting attention. And I, I think I've shared this story before, um, but I, I've led worship for a long time uh, in, in many contexts. And I had someone come up to me after worship, after I led music, right? And then the sermon, all that. But it was at the end of service. And they came, I, just, I didn't get a lot out of worship today. Now, you know me well enough to know that that was the wrong thing to say. And I looked back and I said, I didn't know we were worshiping you. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. Uh, I actually took class in worship leading at one point. I don't remember when. Um, and one of the things they talked about is um, sometimes, uh, you know, the worship leader thinks it's the, it's the stage to the seats, as it were. Right? It's about me giving to the, 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 the congregation and them receiving it. Or some worship leaders, well, no, it's from the seats to the stage. I want to hear you sing. No, it's the seats 
and the stage focused on him. We don't worship God for any of those reasons. We worship him because he's worthy. It's not about our feelings. You ever come to church on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night? I don't feel like singing. Grumpy. I've done that. I've done that when I had to lead worship. And I don't know, if you ever pay attention, my wife has found it. I've seen it before. Um, Usually it takes two or three songs and the spirit breaks me of it. But I'll be in a bad attitude in the first song or two. I'm just singing it because I'm supposed to. And then it gets to the point where it's... (laughs) And I actually start worshiping. Uh, But it happens to all of us. Right, So it's not about our feelings or what we're going to get out of it because we're not the object of worship. God is the one true and living God. So I once read a book called The Seven Words of Worship by Harland and Moser. And they gave the motivation for worship that I constantly keep in my mind. They said, we worship God for who he is and for all he has done, is doing, and will do. If you ever need a reason to worship, right? Maybe your circumstances suck. Maybe you had a horrible day. Maybe you don't want to get out of bed. Maybe you wish the sun would go away. Um, have, you ever, have you ever been there? I've been there. I've gotten up in the morning and looked out and I'm like, I just wish it would go away. I don't want light. I don't want to deal with it today. Maybe you can't think of a reason based on your circumstances or your emotions or anything around you that would cause you to want to worship. So think about who he is. Think about who he is, his love, his grace and mercy and compassion, his righteousness and holiness and creativity and and his infinite patience with us. Then think about what he's done created us, sustains us, sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins and to save us. If you can't think of anything else, think of that. And there's been times I've gone to the Lord in prayer and I go, all right, Lord, I hate everything right now, but you're worthy of my time and attention. I've said that. There's no need to not, it doesn't do you any good to not be honest with him. He knows anyway. But if you ever need a reason, there you go. Next week, we will see God's covenant with David, which is essentially God's promise to bring the Messiah to Israel through David's line. And that's why I didn't want to try to get through chapter 7, because it needs its own time. Uh, But that's next week. Uh, Until then, let's pray. Lord, we love you. Because you are great and good and kind and merciful and you have saved us. And we worship you, Father, even in this very moment. We worship you because you are worthy. I pray, Father, that you would help each of us to constantly have that motivation. That whatever we do in word or deed, that we would do it all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bless the rest of our week. Give us grace and mercy and watch over us with whatever it is we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.